Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free, free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Well, the passage we're considering this morning is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. I think you'll be helped if you have that open in front of you, particularly as we don't have a screen that we can project uh, the words uh, up on. Uh, Romans chapter 8, not a traditional Easter text perhaps, but I think as Heidi was reading it, perhaps you saw the way that the apostles' uh, thinking here touches on some Easter themes. Uh, Easter is about life and death, or more specifically, life emerging unexpectedly from and triumphantly over death. And that's what the apostle wants to talk to the people at Rome, the Christians at Rome about you see in these verses the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see that the triune God has worked together powerfully to bring about a resurrection of sorts in your life so that you used to be dead but are now gloriously alive. Uh, that's what the Apostle Paul wants to talk with us about this Easter morning. Now my guess is that Everyone here falls probably into one of three categories, broadly speaking. Uh, first, it could be that you are not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here regularly. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning. And I want you to know you're very welcome. Very glad that you're here. And I hope that this passage from God's word provokes something in you. I hope that what the Apostle Paul says here gets under your skin and gives you a sense that you have a need that only Jesus can, can fix for you. I hope the good news of what God has done for his people would provoke in you a kind of productive jealousy and envy. Because what I want you to know at the outset is that every good thing we're gonna think about this morning 
is open to you. You are invited in to every good thing that we're reading about this morning. The only thing keeping you from experiencing all of the, the glorious love of God for his people in Jesus is your unwillingness to come and receive it. So if God says something in his word this morning that you don't like, just remember that God's desire is not that you be condemned, but that you would come to him for salvation. The second kind of person that might be here this morning is someone who thinks of themselves as a Christian, but, but honestly, you're not sure how much difference it makes in your life. You find your struggles with sin excruciating and frustrating and discouraging, and so you're tired. You're, you're tired of fighting what might seem like a losing battle, or maybe you gave up fighting a long time ago. And so sometimes you wonder if you really are a Christian at all. Sometimes you wonder if you really even want to be. It might be easier just to give up, give in, and get on with your life. And so if that's you, if that's where you are this morning, I hope that the, the truth that we see in God's word here would breathe some fresh hope and fresh life into your sails. I hope that you might see more clearly what it means to be a follower of Christ, both in what God has done for you and what resources you have for a transformed life and what hope you have for the future. And finally, if you're a follower of Christ, maybe you're at the beginning of your earthly pilgrimage or you're nearing its end, I hope that you're strengthened and encouraged this morning by the reminder of God's incredible love for you in Christ so that the truth that God speaks to us this morning, even though these truths might be invisible to our sort of naked eye, that these truths might be so real to you that they become the atmosphere that you live in every day. Now, as we turn to this passage, we are jumping into the middle of a long and tightly constructed argument. If you've ever read Paul's letter to the Roman church, you know that's true. So at the risk of vastly oversimplifying, the Apostle Paul, up until this point, has been thinking about two things. First, the bad news of the human condition. And then second, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Paul's basically been talking about bad news and good news. The bad news of the natural human condition is that we all live under the power and penalty of sin. We live under the penalty of sin, Paul's been showing us, in that we all deserve God's condemnation. Now, that might sound odd to you, but we, we look out into the world and we, I think, all want God to hold people accountable when they do terrible things. And the good news is that he will. But the bad news is that he will hold each of us accountable as well. And unlike what we might face if we were to go into a human courtroom, God is able to evaluate every deed, every thought, every intention with a, a perfect standard of holiness. Right? Think about how devastating that would be. Right? If you took everything you've ever done that you're ashamed of, every act of violence, every act of selfishness or anger or dishonesty or perversion. Right? If you were to be judged for those things, it, it wouldn't be pretty. If I were to be judged for those things, it wouldn't be pretty. But it's not just the things that you've done. Think about all the things you've failed to do. When I think about the ways that I've squandered my talent, wasted my time, taken what was given to me for the glory of God and, have, and for the good of my fellow man and have used it for myself instead. Think of all the things I've done. Think of all the things I haven't done. Now add in everything you've ever thought 
Throw in every sinful impulse, every motivation, every intention, uh, all the pride, the the jealousy, the envy, the greed, the self-pity. Every way that you, by word or example, have encouraged other people to live for themselves and in rebellion against God. Now add in all of the ways that you've participated in systems that harm others so that you might benefit, so that you can have what you want whether that's the, the widespread human trafficking that supports the pornography industry or, or the exploitative labor practices that mean that you get cheap consumer goods or the environmental disasters that result from our Western lifestyles. Right? Take all of that together, that stew of, of sin and misery, and let an all-seeing, all-knowing, perfectly just, utterly holy God pass judgment on you and hold you accountable. You can see why in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that none of us is righteous. No, not one. You can see why he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's not just the future judgment of God that concerns us. It's not just the penalty that comes to us as sinners. Paul's also told us that we are under sin's power. You see, sin isn't just something we do. Paul tells us in in Romans that it's a master that rules over us. It's It's a power that compels us. It is a law that organizes our lives, living for ourselves, caring about ourselves. It's what comes naturally to us, right? You don't have to be taught to be selfish. You don't have to learn it. You don't have to practice and, and cultivate and hone your skills. It simply is who you are. We cannot be otherwise. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that we are all purely wicked or completely malevolent, right? That's obviously not true. As God's creatures made in his image, we are capable of all sorts of kindness and love and creativity and courage and wisdom. But it is true that on our own, even the good things we do are corrupted by sin. We might do something kind, But at least part of us wants to be seen doing something kind by others. We might serve others, and at least part of us, you know, it makes us feel better. And that's really why we do it. Perhaps our condition is most clear in this, that even when we want to do the right thing, even when our our intentions are noble, sin is somehow at our elbow, whispering in our ear, dragging us down. We can't help but sin. We are under sin's penalty and under its power. In his letter to the Romans, Paul captures this idea with the figurative phrase, the flesh. Right? It's figurative because Paul's not primarily talking about the stuff that makes up our bodies. He's not talking about our physical composition, right? our hands and our ears and our eyes. Rather, when Paul talks about the flesh, it's a way of being that is opposed to God, postured towards sin and selfishness, that is corrupted and corrupting. And so in our passage for this morning from Romans chapter 8, we see Paul reflecting on what it means for us as human beings to be in the flesh. Look there in verses 6 to 8. Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So that's each one of us, naturally. Again, in whatever ways that we might be smart or funny or generous or kind, this is what is true of us as sinners. Our minds are set on the flesh and thus are hostile to God. Our flesh, our sin nature, does not and cannot submit to God's law. Right? Even if we're able to acknowledge that God's ways are right, that I shouldn't lie, that I, I shouldn't get angry, I shouldn't commit adultery, right? we, we can't help but not break them. Paul's takeaway there in verse 8 is devastating. He says, those who are in the flesh, and again, naturally, that is all of us, cannot please God. Remember, I told you Paul's worried about two things. First, the bad news, right, that we are naturally all under sin's penalty and power, right? Our minds, which are set on the flesh, are death. But there's another thing. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. You do have to understand that bad news or else the good news doesn't make any sense. But, but ultimately, what Paul wants to talk with us about is the good news. Easter is about life overcoming death. And that's where the action in our passage really is this morning. Because the other thing that concerns the apostle is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning. What I want to do as we think about these verses is briefly look at three things Paul tells us God has done for us. Three things that God has done for us. And then one thing, just briefly at the conclusion, that God has said he will do for us. So three things that God has done and one thing that he will do. So in terms of what God has done for us, first, Paul tells us that he has taken away the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. Look there in verse 1 where we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That sentence, that verse is incredibly good news. It is the theme of this chapter. It is the heart of the gospel. You could, you could even say that this is the message of the Bible. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, back in chapter 7, Paul's been talking about the ways that Christians continue to struggle with indwelling sin. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But for now, his point is this. There is no condemnation. That is to say, the situation that we talked about earlier, right, where maybe you were thinking about getting up and leaving church before you became too depressed to have lunch this afternoon, right, where, where an utterly holy, perfectly righteous God will judge us and give us the death that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion. Paul says that that state of affairs has been suspended, has been reversed, has been upended. Paul can talk about a world in which we experience no condemnation. And that's obviously good news. Now notice two things about what he says here in this first verse. First, this freedom from condemnation, he says, are for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a, a promise. This is not a blessing offered to all people without distinction. It applies only to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God hasn't done what we might be tempted to think he should do. We might be tempted to think that if God wants to be merciful, what he should do 
is just turn a blind eye to sin. Just, just forgive everyone for everything and let bygones be bygones. While that might be in a way merciful, it certainly wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be righteous. It wouldn't be holy. And so God, not surprisingly, has a much better plan, a plan to condemn our sin without condemning us. You see there in the second half of verse 3, Paul says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So how did God condemn our sin? Paul says, by sending his own son. Right? God didn't just send an angel. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't send a politician or a scientist or a teacher. Because that wouldn't address our great spiritual need. God didn't send us a plan. He didn't send us a model to follow so that we could somehow learn to condemn sin in our own flesh. No, God did the work himself. He sent his own son, the most beautiful, precious, glorious person in the universe. God condemned sin in us by sending his own son, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That word likeness is key. The Son of God took on our flesh. He became a human being. He felt the things that we feel. He was tempted the ways, we're, in, ways in which we're tempted. His flesh was just like ours, but it was not sinful. Jesus was sinless. He was not under sin's power in the way that you and I are. Yet God condemned our sin by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul says, and for sin. That phrase gets rendered sort of oddly or uncomfortably in English. But the word that Paul is using there is the word that was used for the sin offerings offered by the people of Israel in the Old Testament. I think Paul's saying that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to, to offer himself as a sin offering for us to give up his life on the cross as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, free from the penalty and power of death, experienced that penalty for us. He experienced the condemnation that we deserve because of our sins. Jesus on the cross died the death that we deserve. And so that death that he died now applies. It stands in for anyone who will turn from their sin and put their trust in him. Right? Anyone who is in Christ, as Paul puts it there in verse 1, by faith, has all of their condemnation taken away by Jesus' death. If you are in Christ, there's simply no condemnation left for you. Right? If you are hopelessly in debt... And someone comes along, and in their love for you, they pay off that massive debt. Well, the bank is no longer going to require it from you, right? The bank's not going to come along and say, well, look, your debt is paid, but still, it feels like you should contribute something to this process. Right? In the same way, on the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt. He took all of the condemnation that his people carry. And so now Paul can give us the gloriously wonderful, freeing news that there is no condemnation left for you. 
Friends, this is why the Bible insists that there is no salvation to be found outside of Christ. Not because the Bible's view of the world is parochial or partisan. Not because Christians are territorial and want to win the sort of the contest of world religions. But because there's only two ways to be. Either you bear your condemnation yourself or Jesus bears it for you. There is no third option where you work harder and offer sacrifices and give money and perform religious duties and become a decent and an accepting person. Right? It's a binary world. Either you are in your sin or you are in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And notice also, notice that Paul says there is now no condemnation. Some aspects of our salvation are off in the future. We will one day receive glorious resurrection bodies just like Jesus. We will one day be free from sin and suffering, but that's not today. But Paul says when it comes to freedom from condemnation, that's something we experience right now. That's something that's true of you if you are in Christ this very moment. This is something that has already been accomplished. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. It is a present reality for all of those who have trusted in Christ. So Christian, I wonder if you live like this is true. That Jesus took all of your guilt and shame and condemnation. That he left nothing behind for you to chew on. Or do you feel like somehow that's presumptuous? That you'd be better off showing God that you're serious by at least beating yourself up a little bit for the things that you do that are wrong. You don't want to take it for granted. And so when you fall short, you want to reserve the right to, to, to condemn yourself just a little bit. But Christian, Jesus isn't a halfway savior. He didn't die a halfway death. And he has left no condemnation for you whatsoever. Now, as you grow in holiness, as you grow in Christ-likeness, as the Holy Spirit makes you more and more aware of your sin, so that you're more and more aware of the condemnation that you deserve, it, it may be that you, you begin to actually be harder on yourself and to actually condemn yourself more and more. You might see your sin and be more upset with yourself, more discouraged. But Christian, the question isn't whether you're still a sinner. Of course you are. The question isn't, are, are you worthy of condemnation? The Bible says that you are. No, the, the question we have to ask is, are you in Christ? Because if you are, you are free. You are free from any and all condemnation. Your debt has been paid. You're completely right with God. Not because you've cleaned up your act, but because God sent his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so you don't actually honor him. You don't please him by living like that's not true. You don't please God by holding on to the guilt and the condemnation that his son died to take away. So Christian, you are free to live in the good of this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing that God has done for us. He's taken away the penalty of our sin and guilt 
The second thing that God has done for us is to set us free from the law of sin and death. Look there in verse 2. Paul says that for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So again, remember earlier, we said that we are, we, our problem is that we're under sin's penalty and under sin's power. Jesus died. He took our condemnation to remove that penalty from us. And, and, and now there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What we see here in verse 2 is that in Christ Jesus... We're not only freed from the penalty of sin, but we're freed from its power as well. Here, Paul describes that power as the law of sin and death. That word law can be tricky. Paul uses it a couple of different ways in this passage. But here in verse 2, the word law means not, not, not a command, not, not an instruction, right? Like the law says only go 25 on church road, even though that's ridiculously slow, Right? That's not how Paul's using the word here. He's saying the word law here in the sense of of power or or principle. Maybe think about the law of gravity. That's not a commandment. That's not an instruction. It's a way that the world is. It's a principle. It's a power. If I take a rock and I throw it, it is subject to the law of gravity. And the way I know that is because it falls to the ground. That power acts on it. It doesn't have to choose to fall to the ground. I don't have to make it fall. Gravity is a law that acts on everything within its power. And so in the same way, as we talked about earlier, all human beings are naturally under the power of this law of sin and death. We don't have to work at sin. We don't have to put any effort into dying. It's simply what happens to us. It's what we do. As people under the law of sin and death, we sin and we die. Just like a rock will eventually fall to the ground. And so what does that mean practically? Well, here, Paul says that you've been set free from that law in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you are no longer a rock being dragged helplessly to the ground by the law of gravity. You are not a piece of driftwood being carried along by the current. Paul says, no, when you are in Christ, God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you. And so you are under now a different law. You are being acted upon by a different principle. Your life, we might say, is under new management. Look there in verse 9. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, right? If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in him, Paul says you have the Holy Spirit. The only people without the spirit, Paul says, are people who do not belong to him. A few verses later in Romans 8, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, Paul says, you're being led by the Spirit. You are no longer in the flesh. You are no longer a captive to the principle and the power of sin. You are not spiritually dead. You are not helpless. You are not unable to do anything except sin. You are not a rock falling to the ground. Instead, Paul says... 
You're under the law of the spirit of life. You are in the spirit. He, the Holy Spirit of God, is the power and principle that controls you and governs you. And that means that you are now able to please the Lord. There in verse 8, Paul says, those in the flesh cannot please God. The opposite is also true. Those who are in the spirit are now able to please the Lord. You are able to love the things that God loves, to obey him because you are his beloved child. The spirit will lead you to do the things that please God. He transforms our hearts so that we delight in God's will. And the spirit empowers you now to fight against the law of sin and death, to fight against the pull of sin. To be clear, what Paul's saying here is not that we are free in this life from the presence of indwelling sin. We don't have time for that this morning. You can read Romans chapter 7. Paul makes that abundantly clear. Paul makes it clear that the law of sin, indwelling sin in our flesh, it still pulls at us. It, it tugs at us like gravity. And so we may even fall to the ground from time to time. But what Paul's saying here in Romans 8 is that you are not under its rule. You are not a rock helplessly falling to the ground with no other option. Now Paul's saying you're more like a bird. You've been made to fly. You've been made alive in order to overcome the constraints of gravity. Christian, one of the best ways to fight against sin, one of the great weapons that we have in the battle against the flesh is to realize that you are free. To realize that the Spirit of God has displaced that old master. That you are under a new law. That you don't have to obey the flesh and its desires. One of the great weapons we have is to realize that when you fall, when the, when the law of gravity seems for a moment to get the upper hand, that doesn't mean that you've ceased to be a bird. It doesn't mean that you are condemned means that it's time to press in to all that is true of you as a bird. That you're actually not gravity-bound, but you've been made and designed to fly. So if you are in Christ, think about your life. Can you see evidence of the law of the spirit of life at work in you? If you were here on Good Friday, did you find your heart moved to praise by contemplating what Jesus did for you on the cross? As we sang and read this morning, did, did, the, did the resurrection of Christ fill you with joy and hope? Can you see anywhere in your life where your tastes have changed? Where you now turn away from things that used to thrill you? Do you find yourself more filled with love for God and, and for other people? I think the Apostle Paul gives us a deep dive on this in Galatians 5. A picture of what it means to, to live under the law of the spirit of life. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 16 and 17, we read this. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Can you see how he's talking about the same things that he's discussing in Romans 8? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
Right? Paul's talking about the spirit and the flesh, how they're opposed to one another and at war with one another in the Christian. And to be clear, that is only true of those who are in Christ. Naturally, apart from Christ, apart from the spirit, there is no battle in us. The flesh, the law of sin and death, it reigns and it rules unchallenged. But what Paul's telling us here in Romans 8 is that this battle that's waged within us, the, the outcome is not in doubt. The spirit is at work in us, causing us to hate the things we used to love and to love things that we used to hate. Paul goes on in Galatians 5 to give us some specific examples of what this looks like. He says, starting in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. So this is, this is life lived under the power, under the law of sin and death. Paul says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, life lived under the law of the Spirit of life. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So Christian, if you see the presence of that second list in your life, if you see the weakening influence of that first list in your life, that's the rule of the Spirit. And that's the trajectory of where your life is headed. And so each day when you wake up, you can commit yourself to living out in your daily life what is true of you spiritually. Again, this is an important step in holiness that each day you set your mind on the Spirit, that you commit yourself to living out in your daily life what is true of you. As Paul says in Romans 8, verses 5 to 6, he says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Because God has set us free from the law of sin and death, because we are now under the law of the spirit of life, our minds are set on the spirit rather than on the flesh. We are controlled by him. And that brings us to the third thing that God has done. He's taken away our condemnation. He set us free from the law of sin and death. The third thing Paul tells us that God has done is that he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us. Look there in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that God has done something that the law could not do on its own. And here he's using the word law differently. He's not talking about law as in principle and power like the law of gravity. Here he's talking about the law of Moses, right? The law of God given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And the thing that the law couldn't do 
was to bring about a state of affairs where the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, as Paul puts it there in verse 4. You see, the law of God comes with a righteous requirement. It demanded that something righteous be true of us. It requires it of us. What is that righteous requirement? Well, it's quite a bit, actually. The law is pretty long. But Jesus really helpfully summarized it for us. In Mark chapter 12, he was asked which commandment of the Mosaic law was the most important. And here's what Jesus said. This is Mark 12, verse 29 to 31. Jesus answered, the most important, that is law, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second, Jesus threw in as a bonus, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In fact, later on in the book of Romans, Paul echoes that same idea in Romans 13, verses 8 to 9. He tells the church, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we've been looking at this morning, God's gift of his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the law of the spirit of life displacing the law of sin and death in our lives, all of that, Paul says, is aimed at seeing this righteous requirement of the law actually produced in your life. All of it has its end result in making you a person who loves God, who delights in his ways, who delights to obey him, and a person who loves other people. Paul says the law of Moses was powerless to do this, weakened there in verse 3, as it was by the flesh. That is to say the law, which is good and right and holy, couldn't make our sinful flesh loving and obedient. And so as the Old Testament moves on, you see that the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Ezekiel, they began to see a coming day when God would intervene, when he would change the nature of his relationship with his people, a time when God would move to actually give his people the ability to love him and to keep his commandments. And so here in Romans 8, we see that that is exactly what God has done for us. He condemned our sin by sending the Lord Jesus to live a perfectly righteous life for us, fulfilling the requirements of the Mosaic law and dying in our place. And now he has sent us his spirit so that we might walk with him rather than walking in the flesh. Those of us who have experienced this transformation, who have been transferred from that realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit, Paul says are now actually able to live Lives of law-fulfilling love. Not perfectly yet, but truly. Again, we are reminded that this is God's work. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his son. 
And because that's true, because God has acted powerfully to do what we could never do for ourselves, only because that's true are we able to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? If God just simply came and gave us clearer instructions, more rules to follow, we would be hopeless and helpless. But God in his love has given us his spirit so that we are able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And that brings us to our final thing for this morning. Having seen three things that God has done for us, let's briefly remind ourselves of the one thing that God has said he will do for us. Look there in verses 10 to 11. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we have this picture of a great resurrection of sorts that has happened in our lives. Sin brings death. Death to our bodies, death to our souls. But as we've seen here in Romans 8, God has given us spiritual life through the death of his son and the powerful presence of his life-giving spirit. I love the way Paul talks about it there in verse 11. This is what made me want to preach this passage on Easter Sunday. Uh, Paul could have simply said, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, or if the Spirit of God lives in you. But, but he reminds us here that the God whose Spirit lives in you is the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. He is the God of Easter morning. He is the God of the empty tomb. He is the God of life triumphing over death. And so, brothers and sisters, we live that resurrection life every day when we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But our hope isn't just for this life. Because even though our bodies are dying, even though our bodies go into the grave, Paul reminds us here that that is not the end. God has yet one more amazing act of grace and salvation and deliverance in store for us. He will, Paul says, one day give life to our mortal bodies. He will raise us from the dead, just like he raised the Lord Jesus. And so the good news is, we are not locked into an eternal struggle with sin. There is a coming day when indwelling sin, that, that ever-present pull of gravity, will have no influence on us. If you are in Christ, that's your future. Resurrection life. Eternity spent soaring the way you were meant to. So Christian, in this passage, you see, you see your past, you see your present, and you see your future. In the past, you were under the law of sin and death. In the present, you are now free from any condemnation, indwelt by the spirit of life, walking according to his ways, setting your mind on him, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in you day to day. And in the future, God will give life to your mortal body. The spirit of resurrection will call you out of the grave and you will live forever. 
You see, our Easter celebration is not just about something that happened 2,000 years ago, but about what God has promised will happen in the future. And so as we come to the table, we find ourselves focused in a similar way on those three horizons, the past, the present, and the future. We are reminded that it's only in the broken body and in the shed blood of our Lord Jesus that we have any hope at all. We look to the past and we see that he was condemned on the cross so that there might be no condemnation for us. We look to the present where he indwells us by his spirit, where he meets with his people, the risen Lord Jesus at the table. And he makes us part of his body and he gives us power to fight against sin. And we look to the future when he has promised to return and to bring us to be with him. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray together, and then let's come to the table. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we delight in your salvation this morning. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your love that you would send your own Son for us, that sin might be condemned in us. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you for your broken body and your shed blood, that you were condemned so that there might be no condemnation for us. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of resurrection, we delight to live under your law, to be brought to life by you. We pray, Spirit, that you would help us increasingly day by day to set our minds on you and to walk in your ways. Would you keep us, Spirit, until that great day when the Lord Jesus returns? until that day when we are raised to be with him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.